Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3 and put a marker in Titus chapter 1, that's where we'll be considering things for this time period. I was told early on in preaching that you should never begin a sermon or in a sermon have to qualify things. And you certainly shouldn't begin by telling people, uh, don't listen to you. But I have to qualify some things this morning as I begin this period. First of all, what I'm preaching and trying to teach is on my shoulders, my shoulders alone. I do not represent the eldership in this. I represent Ricky and Ricky only and the results of Ricky's study. The elders may or may not agree with me. On much, if anything I've spoken of, they may or may not, and they may or may not agree with, with me today. I'm representing myself. You need to understand that. I'm not the voice for the eldership. Second of all, neither this time nor any time that I or Jordan stand before you are we to do so and think for you. I'm not telling you what to think. I am going to ask you to reason with me. But I'm not telling you you have to think what I think. But I ask you to reason with me at least in some of the things we'll talk about. Some of the things I will present are my study conclusions. Yes, I'm confident in my study conclusions. Today. It may be in the future, sometime I change my mind about something. But I'm confident in the conclusions I've reached that I'm going to present some things to you today. But because I'm confident in it doesn't mean you have to agree with me. It is my responsibility as a teacher of the Word to open the Word, teach, and reason with you. It is your responsibility as listeners to take and examine if you agree fine, if you don't find the final analysis, Ricky alone doesn't get to choose who will be the existing or future elders, shepherds, or bishops. That is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to teach what I have come to conclusions about from studying the Word of God. And so I want to begin with those qualifications with you because with the exception of maybe just one or two things that might have a variant in it along the way everything has been peachy king hunky-dory to this point but at this point today and next Sunday at 1050 to the most controversial aspects of 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1 I'll be talking about It'll become obvious at the time of the sermon which one that is today. So as long as we're on the same page regarding that, then, then we're good. I just want to preface that with you, and that's my sincere heart about this. And so with that, let's begin. Assuming, as I have said several times throughout the study, that we do not have Timothy or Titus, 
would we be able to find the kind of man that the Bible describes as an elder, a shepherd, or a bishop? For example, if a man was a novice, he was baptized last week, but because he's baptized, he's a good man. Is that the kind of man that we're going to ask to be a shepherd, an elder, or a bishop? I hardly think that would be the case. I hardly think that would be appropriate. There are a number of things that would be flaws with regard to his development of what he needs to have. Let's say a man's been around a long time and not necessarily been quarrelsome, but there's a trail of rubble behind him. And there are lives that have been affected negatively by that man. Do we simply say, well, okay, he's improved, he's gotten better, and as long as he doesn't mess up again, we'll have him. How long is he going to be there? Again, that may not be the man that we're, we're looking at when we think about this. Furthermore, in nothing that I have described thus far, have I described anything relative to the wife of the man? Maybe the wife of the man is a discredit to him. Maybe she is immoral. Maybe the, the wife of the man is, is a quarrelsome woman. And she is one that is not a credit to him, but a discredit. But nothing's been said and none of, none of these things are mentioned about the wife that are there. Now that's said about the man, but that's the wife, and that's how she, that's her description. So let me pause just a moment and say a few things about the wife. In 1 Timothy 3, and you look down at verse 11, I'll preface by saying I do not think verse 11 is talking about the wife of elders. It may or may not be talking about the wife of deacons. But however it's describing, and whoever's describing, it ought to be consistent with the kind of wife that's being described here. And so he says, let the wives be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Why would you describe whoever this wife is, whoever this woman is here, why would you describe her that way? Why would you describe her as, as someone that is reverent? Someone that is, that is respectful Someone that has a, 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 an integrity and a humbleness about her. Why would you describe as, her as someone not slanderous? Why would you describe her as someone that is temperate, say, cool-headed? And why would you find, describe her as someone that is faithful, that is trustworthy? D do you think that the man that is being described in these passages, that has a wife that's not reverent, that has a wife that is slanderous, that has a wife that is hot-headed, and has a wife that cannot be trusted. Though the man may not be that, do you think that's the kind of man you want to be a shepherd? To be an elder? To be a bishop? So ladies, let me say something to you about that. With no intent to pontificate, but just be honest with you about it. And this is true not only of present wives, it's few of is true of, of future wives as well. You have everything to do 
with how your husband will be viewed and respected. And if you, in your behavior, in your attitude, behave in a way that does anything that brings disrespect toward him, that does anything that discredits him, you may not be an immoral woman, but if you're a woman who is given to talk, and I'm not saying talking about others, I'm saying talking about your husband, and what you say about your husband to others is negative, when you get in a group of other women, then don't be surprised that when your husband's considered, they remember what you said about your husband that was negative. May I say something about how you present yourself? While nothing is said here with regard to, to the way a woman presents herself in a godly manner, in the way she dresses, if you dress in a way that that has any element of salaciousness attached to it, that does not represent a serious mind about the way you present yourself, then don't be surprised that when your husband is considered, they say something about that. There's something said about that. If, if, if what you do is you make excuses for your behavior and the behavior of your children, your husband doesn't. He's straightforward with it, but, but you do. Then don't be surprised that something is said about that. Who you are and what you are and how you present yourself has everything to do with a woman that is reverent, that is temperate, and that is faithful, not slanderous. While 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 do not directly Talk about the wife. And the purpose of the wife being mentioned is something completely different than that. I must exhort you with the great sincerity of my heart. Please, please, please consider yourself and how you conduct yourself and how you present yourself. Because you will have a tremendous impact. On him and how he is perceived. I remember from Proverbs chapter 31. That her husband is honored in the gate. Because of her. Her husband is honored in the gate. He's honored in a place of wisdom because of her. Because of how she elevates him. Not because of how she diminishes him. So please consider that you do everything you can to elevate your husband. And that your attitude, your behavior, the way you present yourself is going to do everything you can to present your husband. You're not, you're not argumentative. You're not quarrelsome. And you don't present yourself as being that to others. You're hospitable and you take the lead in being his hospitable person. And that hospitality is impartial with people. And people see you as impartial with them. As opposed to being partial. That is significant. Make sure you are a woman that is reverent. Make sure you are a woman that is temperate. Make sure you are a woman that is faithful in all things. I move on. So when we think about this this morning, I want you to think about it from the standpoint of looking at some of the descriptions that we have here.
And I'm going to walk through these this morning. And this is where I said in the 9 o'clock hour I was going to parse things. So I am going to parse them. And we're going to break these down in the mechanical way we talked about not to do it. But I don't know another way to approach this, to think about it. But we're not going to have any elongated word study about this. We're just going to give the highlights of what we're talking about. And the words kind of stand for themselves. First of all, you have the idea that he says, I'm reading 1 Timothy 3 now. Verse 1, a husband must be blameless. The idea of blameless does not mean he has no weaknesses. The idea of blameless means no one can strike a blow against. No one can lay hold on him for any charge. The idea of blameless is you'd be absolutely surprised to hear an accusation made against that man of dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. That it was said of this man that, that he is a liar. You'd be absolutely shocked to hear this man's a liar because that is not the kind of character you have perceived him having. The idea of blameless doesn't mean they have no weaknesses. Again, as I said, 9 o'clock, not all weaknesses are hidden. Some weaknesses are open. It ought to be this kind of man that if something is awry in his life, something is gravely amiss in his life, this is not a man you have to twist his arm behind his back. To get him to say, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. This is not a man who's ever afraid to say, please forgive me because because I've sinned. This is a man that will take the lead in standing before and say, I have sinned, I have been wrong, please forgive me. And forgiveness ought to be the end of it. That ought to be the end of any blame being cast against the man. And so the idea of blameless is not this man has never sinned. It's not this man has the weaknesses. But that whatever sin or weakness he has, he is working on the weakness and he has tried to make right the sin that is there. And he's tried to present himself as someone that you cannot lay a charge or lay hold or strike a blow against. Regardless of what the sin has been or what the weakness is. And so he is presented as blameless. When Job was presented as blameless, he was not presented as a man that was sinless. What the Lord was saying is, my servant Job is blameless. You can't strike a blow against him. You can't point an accusing finger at him. Hold your finger there in 1 Timothy 3 and turn to Romans chapter 8 just a moment. I think Paul in Romans chapter 8 will describes what I'm trying to say here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. What shall, then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. Verse 32. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The idea of blameless is who can bring a charge against him? Who can bring a charge against him? That's the idea of blameless. Now everything else, as I said, 9 o'clock, flows under this umbrella of being blameless. And so when we think about the man that's blameless, we look at the man that then is temperate. The idea of temperate is cool unimpassioned, calm. I think about that in the discussion of Acts chapter 15 that we talked about. Here you have this fervent, this strong discussion about circumcision and should Gentiles be circumcised to come into Christ. And Paul and Barnabas and James, they had to be cool-headed there. And the elders had to be cool-headed. They were temperate. So the idea of temperate is someone who is calm, not lacking passion, but someone who is moved to being, un- to being passionate, he's unimpassioned. He's not over the top with it. He's controlled in what he is. He's cool-headed. I think the idea of sober-minded, the idea of sober-minded is serious. 
uh, it's not frivolous. Here's a man who takes serious the responsibilities that he has before God. Here's a man who takes serious his responsibility about developing himself with God. He takes whatever assignment that has been given to him as a serious assignment. It's not that he has no fun. It's not that he has no sense of humor. It's not that he can't joke with people. It's not that he doesn't smile. He doesn't walk around with a grimace on his face in a black suit and a stovepipe hat that's black and always has a frown. And everybody, look at how serious he is. He never smiles. Oh, look how serious. No. Here's a man who has a joy of life, but he is serious about the responsibilities he's been tagged with. He's not frivolous with it. Then you have the idea of, of good behavior. I would say a lover of good. But it's interesting here, this idea of good behavior, the idea of good comes from the word cosmos. The word cosmos means ordered as opposed to chaos. By the way, a corresponding term. In 1 Timothy 2, when he talks about a godly woman, it talks about modest. That word modest is not shamefast. That word modest is ordered. That when she gets herself ordered, you can tell she's a godly woman by how she has herself arranged. And so the idea here of good behavior is he has an ordered behavior about his life. There's not a chaoticness about his life. He's ordered about it. Good behavior. Then you have hospitable. Interesting term. You know, I talked at 9 o'clock about degrees of things. Hospitable is one of those terms. So is good behavior and temperate. But you think about this idea of hospitality. So, so what is hospitality? Well, the word really means lover of strangers. We think about hospitality, and there is an application to be made. If you have me not your house, and I have you in my house. And so we reciprocate. But really what he's talking about when he says hospitality is a lover of people. A lover of people. Now, it may be that one is more hospitable, that is, have people in his or her house more than another does. It may be that one takes people out to eat. But there has been demonstrated a hospitality, a lover of people. Listen, if you're going to be a shepherd and you're going to be a bishop, you can't hate people. You can't despise people. You have to love people. And if you can't love people, then you can't do this. It doesn't matter what proficiency or lack there is. If you don't have a love of people, that love of people will then enable you to what? To pull people in close to you. And that's the idea that he's talking about. I was able to teach and hold fast the word we've talked about in the past. I'm going to pass by that because we've talked about it several times already. But then he comes to the idea of not given to wine. So he says, not given to wine. Literally, what he's saying there is one who does not labor long at the wine. One who's not ill with the wine. That's what he's talking about there. And some, the American Standard Version there says, not a brawler. So it's laboring long at the wine to be violent. Long with the wine to be argumentative. Long at the wine to be a brawler. And so it's not given to wine. Now, because he says not given to wine, it's okay to have a little wine. If someone says, don't be quarrelsome, is it okay to be a little quarrelsome? If someone says, don't be a liar, is it okay to be a little liar? So because he says not given to wine, does that mean, okay, a little wine's okay? 
In First Peter, hold your finger in First Peter and First Timothy three, and turn to First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, and verse four. First Peter chapter three and verse four. Though we spend enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles, notice how he describes the walk and the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The idea of drunkenness, revelry, and revelry and drinking parties gives all degrees. But the idea of drinking parties there would be that which would be more akin to our social drinking. And what he says is, that was part of the life I'm done with. That's the part of walking like the Gentiles. Walking like the Gentiles was a sot drunk, gutter drunk. And it also had to do with just being in touch with the wine. That is, one who had drinking parties, just social drinking. So because it says not given to wine, does that mean okay? A little wine, a little social drinking wine is okay? Listen, is the kind of man you want who is going to be serious-minded the kind of man who's going to have a little wine, a little intoxicant? In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, you just have this real simple statement that's here. He says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, whoever is led by it is not wise. Whoever is led by it is not wise. So we're talking about a wise man, we're talking about a man that will be blameless. Is a man who engages himself in social drinking and the social use of alcohol, is he a man that you can point to without striking a blow against to say, you use alcohol. Maybe he doesn't get sot drunk, gutter drunk, but you use alcohol. And now I'm going to entrust my soul to you to be sober, to watch for me, and to lead me in green pastures and away from trouble. Whenever you're wallowing in the valley of trouble. So the idea of, of not giving to wine is not a justification for the use of it. What he's saying here is a man doesn't labor ill at wine. He doesn't labor long at the wine because he's not going to be a brawler and he's not going to be given to the use of it. And then he says, not violent. The idea there is combative. He's not a bully. So if you've got a man that is a bully and right put by that quarrelsome, He's argumentative and a bully, and, and he's been a Christian a long time, and he's a good man, but, but he's a bully, and he bullies people. Is, is that the kind of man that you want to be your shepherd to lead you? So here, here's a man that is always combative. There's a difference between contention and contend. You want a man to contend, to hold fast the word of God, but you don't want a man that's contentious. Dr. Fees was contentious. Dr. Fees wasn't contending. And Dr. Fees was contentious for Dr. Fees, not for the Word of God. When you have a man who serves as an elder, shepherd, or bishop that is contentious, the church has a real serious problem. So he says, one's not combative. Your idea of gentle. The idea of gentle is forbearing, someone who's reasonable. Now that would fit back with temperate, someone who's calm and cool. He's reasonable. You can reason with him. You can think with him. He's reasonable how he talks to you, how he approaches you. He's forbearing. He bears with you. Then you have the idea of covetous, not covetous, or not greedy. Turn to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4 and verse 1. 
Look at how this is described in Amos chapter 4 and verse 1 because I think this is really a good description of a man that's not covetous. And again, an application to wives because that's who Amos is addressing. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. He's talking to the wives of the priests. And just call the wives of the priests a bunch of fat cows. So he said, Behold, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring wine, let us drink. The problem in Ezekiel chapter 34 is those men were out for themselves and what they could gain for themselves. They were not out watching for the flock. They were covetous, selfish, self-willed men. And here you have the wives of the priests who are saying, I'm not fat enough. Make me fatter. Get me more wine and get me more food. And is oppressing them in doing so. The idea of a man that's greedy is the idea of a man that is a lover of money. That doesn't mean he can't be wealthy. There's a difference between a man that's wealthy and a man who is a lover of money. That money's his God. Everything is, everything is filtered through the idea of the amount of money that he has. Everything, every way he looks at people is for the use of their money. What can he gain from them? He's just a covetous man. He's a possessive man. That word covetous, by the way, is the same word lust as applies to David, as is applied to Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, speaking of lust for a woman. Here's a man that's greedy, that desires to possess that which he has no right to possess, and is doing everything he can to possess it, regardless of who he has to step on, regardless of who he has to hurt. And when you find a greedy man, you often find a quarrelsome man. And when you find a greedy man, you often find a violent man. And when you find a greedy man, you often find a man that is not very cool-minded. And the only person he's interested in teaching is himself. Question. If Paul had not said that to Timothy, could we have figured that out? Could we have figured that out? Okay, here's a, here's a man. Okay, he's always arguing with people. I know he drinks. I know I don't know that. I, I can't trust. Him. I don't. Here's a man. He can't teach anything past spelling his name. Much less hold fast the word. Here's a man that he's just a bully, and everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. Or here's a man that's calm. Here's a man that's cool. Here's a man that is sober-minded, self-controlled is the idea. Here's a man who is a lover of good. His life is well-ordered. Here's a man who, who is considerate of people. He's not violent with them because he's temperate, because he's not self-willed. Here's a man who's not quarrelsome because he's thoughtful of others. He's gentle is the idea. Could we have found that man? You see, we're talking about here, not the job a man does, but the heart and the character of the man. Now, when Paul wrote Timothy this, Timothy's not with a bunch of Jews. Timothy's in Ephesus with a bunch of Gentiles. And Titus is in Crete, and they're described as slow belly and liars. That is lazy, and you can't trust a word they say. That's the kind of people he's talking to there. 
The city of Ephesus, as far as Rome was concerned, was a city of refuge. Remember what the cities of refuge were in the Old Testament? If a man committed a crime, if he stayed within the bow shot of the city, he could be prosecuted. Here you have Ephesus. This is the, you talk, talk about what if you want that's there in Ephesus. And he's telling Timothy, you stay in Ephesus and you find these kind of men in that kind of hellhole. You find these kind of men who are going to be saints. And who will be these kind of men in Ephesus. You find them in that kind of environment. Isn't that amazing to think about? That out of an environment like Ephesus, where you can shoot, you can steal, you can lie, you can get by with it, you can murder, you commit fornication, nobody think a thing about it, and you're going to find people like this? Don't you see that's the power of the gospel? You're going to go to Crete where they're described as slow bellies and a bunch of liars, and you're going to find men who are honorable like this? That's the power of the gospel right there. To work in the heart of a man. So, if you're observant, you notice I skipped something in verse 3. And so he says then, a bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife. I'd like to talk to you about that in just a moment. I'd like to share my thinking with you about that for just a moment. And this is where I really need you to apply and think about what I said in the beginning here. Because I'm going to present to you two thoughts. And I'm going to tell you which I think the text teaches and why it teaches that. First of all, when he says a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. With no intent to be cute, someone says it says means what it says and says what it means. Here's a man that's married to one woman. One woman only, one woman for all all times. He's married to a second woman, regardless of the circumstances, death, legitimate, ability to be remarried. Then he's been married to two women. He has two women. He can't be a a husband of one wife. If his wife is deceased, he's no longer the husband of one wife because it says the husband of one wife. It means what it says and says what it means. It's talking about his state of marriage. And there is that consideration that's there. It's not without thought. That what is considered here is his state of marriage. Is he a married man and a husband of one wife? That is his wife still living and never been divorced and remarried. One wife and one wife only all his life. That's a possibility. The state of marriage could be considered here. I admit that. I would propose another probability, though, another possibility. Let me say it that way, another possibility to think about relative to this. So let me break some things down for you in just a moment. First of all, as this is written to Timothy in Ephesus, as I just said, it's written to Timothy with a bunch of Gentiles, not Jews. The Jews at this time had pretty much ceased their polygamy. But Gentiles at this time were still engaged in the act of polygamy. And Even among some Jews, but especially among the Gentiles, the women were just a piece of chattel, a piece of property. For example, let me just walk through some things with you. Put your marker there and turn to Matthew chapter 5. I just want you to see how women were regarded here. Look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So what the Jews were doing here is they're playing fast and loose with the law of God. They're saying, oh, I didn't commit adultery. But he says, you have the heart of an adulterer. Now, a couple of things. First of all, he's not saying here, a look at a woman is wrong. He's not saying that if, if I go up to you and say, you have a beautiful wife. Oops, you lusted. Do you want me to come up to you and say, your wife is as ugly as no goat? I don't know how you married her. No, the aesthetic part of a person is a part of understanding God's beauty and creation that he's made. So it's not that, okay, I see a woman and I think, she's a very beautiful woman. It's that I see a woman, and not only do I think she's beautiful, but if I had the opportunity, I would bed with her. I would commit fornication with her. The only thing I'm lacking is the opportunity. Now, here's a man who has that kind of heart, but he lacks the opportunity. Question, is he though married, the husband of one wife. Furthermore, in verse 31 he says, whoever divorced, furthermore it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality and calls her to commit adultery, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So here's a man that's married, divorced, married and divorced a second time. But Regardless of reason for doing so, it's not because the man has a loyalty to one woman. This man has a hunger for women. He may be married and still have one wife, but he has a hunger for women. In Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, you have the discussion of Jesus, and they're not trying to learn the truth here. They're just trying to trip him up. But Jesus answers their question in verse 4. Have you not read that he who made at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? It's no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God had joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? He said to them, Moses didn't command it, but he permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. Permitted you to divorce your wives from the beginning, it was not so. And Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not permission to do it. But Deuteronomy 24 is saying, if you do this, then this. And you need to understand, if you do that, you can't have her again. If you do that and she marries again, you can't have her again. You're done. So what are they trying to do? Here, here are people who want to be seen as abiding by the law, black and white, technically speaking. But that's not what they're interested in. That's just how they want to be perceived. They're interested in how many wives can I have and it be legitimate? How many women can I have and be legitimate? If you have a man that's just been married one time and one time only, and he's still married one time only, his wife is still alive, but you know, you know he has a roving eye for women, You've seen it. You know it. Is that the man that Timothy's talking about, that Paul's telling Timothy and Titus? That's the husband of one wife? Okay, it's the married state. He still has one wife, but listen. 
When you go back to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, is that what he's saying here? They hear a man can have a husband and one wife, and he can play fast and loose with it, as long as he's still got the one wife. Is that the character of the man you want? Is that the character of the man he's talking about here? Has that man demonstrated a loyalty and a fidelity and a trustworthiness to, number one, God's marriage law, and number two, to his wife, that he's faithful and trustworthy to her? A few technical things. Understand I said technical things. First of all, there's no word for husband in the Greek language. There's no word for wife in the Greek language. The literal language is a one-woman man, and to simplify that, a man of one woman. So here is a man of one woman. And the idea of a man of one woman, yes, it considers there that she's married. That's the state. That's what he's talking about. So marriage would fit there. But mar- by the way, to become married is to become another's. The word married is not there either. To describe someone married is to become another's. So here's a man who, become, who has become one with another. He has become one with another. He is a one woman man or a man of one woman. He is a man who has demonstrated a loyalty and a fidelity to one woman. And you can tell that by his life with her. Just a technical thing. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and look at verse 9 because I think in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9 you have this same figure of speech if that's what it is. If my reasoning is correct. In verse 9, and notice how it's given here. Do not let a widow under 60 years be taken into the number unless she has been the wife of one man. A couple of things. First of all, the idea of she has been or having been is supplied. Berries in his interlinear says being a woman of one man or being a woman, a man, uh, pardon me, being a wife of one man, a woman of one man. Nestle in his interlinear says, having become, having become the wife or woman of one man. So the idea of, of uh, the, the past tense there is really not in the language. It's what ha- has she in her married state when her husband was alive, in her married state being considered when her husband was alive, how was she described? She was described as a wife of one man. Turn to John chapter 4. Let me just draw a contrast for you. John chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. John chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. The woman answered, for, for, uh, back up, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband, your man, and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband, no man. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, men. And for the one whom you have is not your husband in that you spoke, in that you spoke truly. Would you call her a one man woman? Jesus says you have been a five man woman. And now the sixth one you're with is not your husband either. You're a five man woman, not a one man woman. Abbreviating just for time's sake. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 7. In verse 10, following through down to verse 20, and you have the young man that's been hanging around the corner. He says, he's fell off the turnip truck yesterday. I mean, he's more naive than Barney Five. And this woman is there, and she sees him, and man, he is a ripe target for her. And so she uses the attire of a harlot. She uses great speech. She uses, she uses kisses. And she uses religion. 
and she uses touch. And she says to him, my husband has a bag of money and is gone on a journey. She's married. Is she a man, a woman of one man? She's still married to him. Is she a woman of one man? No, nobody would say that. So we come back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9, draw the contrast. The contrast is here is a woman, not unless she has been, not unless she is being, not unless she is being the wife of one man. How is she described in her marriage state? The wife of one man and having been the wife of my man, being the wife of a man, how is she still described even though he's deceased? She's still described as a woman of one man. He's dead. But her marriage state is describing her presently. And that marriage state describing her presently is a woman of one man. A wife of one man. Being the wife of one man is a little, little language there. Now, that has some ramifications to it. A couple of ramifications to it. Number one, if that explanation is, is true, if that explanation is well-reasoned, if, and verse 9 talks about she has been the wife of one man and he's deceased, then why is it any different when you come to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 when it says the husband of one wife if his wife is deceased? What has changed about the man? Is the man no longer blameless? Is the man no longer temperate? Is the man now quarrelsome and now violent? Is the man now covetous? What has changed about the character of the man? I'll tell you what's changed. A heartbeat. A heartbeat. A heart stopped beating. He's no less the husband of one wife the day after his wife dies than he was the day his wife was living when she could barely breathe. Why? Because that's the kind of man he is. That hasn't changed. So we haven't considered this. We'll consider another naughty, second naughty part of this discussion next week about the children. But here's a man who has children. But like Job's children, all of a sudden they're killed in a car accident. All of a sudden a tornado hits them and takes them away. Ruling well his own house, but now he doesn't have a house. No longer has children. Because he no longer has children, does that no longer mean he is... The ruler of his house? Has he not demonstrated what he has done with his children even though now no longer has children? I don't think anybody would say that. The second ramification of that is this. If we respect God's marriage law and what God says about God's marriage law and a man has the right to put away his wife for sexual immorality and having put her away for that have the right to be married again and be bound to that woman. The first he's no longer bound to. He's now bound to this woman is now the husband of one wife. If we respect God's marriage law for what he says, then why can't he now be the husband of one wife? Someone said, well, he has two wives, then we've got a bigger problem. He's the husband of two wives, now we've got a bigger problem. No, that bond has been severed. And he's no longer described as her husband. He's now the husband of one wife. He's now a woman, a man of one woman. He's now a one-woman man. There are ramifications to that. But I would ask you to consider that, that. That what he's talking about here is not 
is the man's wife still alive and does he have the right to be remarried and therefore the wife of one husband, a wife of one man, the man of one woman? Has he demonstrated a loyalty and fidelity to God's marriage law and to his wife? And you can see that through the, character, through the, through the demonstration of his life with her. Well, it's 50 years, 55 years, or however many years it is. Can't be seen as that. So you have two possibilities. Number one, it is as simple as it's the married state. Again, no intent to be cute. It says what it means. It means what it says. Husband of one wife, she's deceased. He's no longer husband of one wife. Husband of one wife, he's divorced, remarried. He's no longer the husband of one wife. Or the little language says a man of one woman. A man who has demonstrated loyalty and fidelity to one wife. You can have a man, I repeat, who's only been married one time and been married for 50 years to one time. But he's still not the man you want because you know he's a woman man. He's not a one woman man. He's a women man. And you can tell by the way he treats women. And most women know that. And most husbands know that. And that's why a husband will tell his wife, you need to watch out for him. Because he's dangerous. But he's only been married one time. That's not the kind of man you want. I leave that to your consideration. I can't make your mind up for you. My confidence and my conclusion is he's talking about here not the married state. He's talking about the man who is a man of one woman. A man whose character is consistent with the overall text. But you have to conclude that, not me. You have to come to your conclusion. Again, I repeat, Ricky does not decide the answer to this question. You have to decide the answer to that question. I can only preach and teach what I'm responsible for teaching and preaching. I should give serious consideration to those things. And finally, I would say, as I close, as Nehemiah said more than one time in his book, especially as he closes the book, Please remember me for the good. If this see you this morning, we can help you be right with God in some way. Then once you come, while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.